Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that it inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. My guest today is Mede Akerawusi. Mede is the founder and CEO of Agency Inc., a Canadian-based international company delivering equity, philanthropy, and social research services to the nonprofit and private sector. He has worked in senior relationship fundraising roles and consulted for a number of the world's leading nonprofit organizations. With more than 25 years of experience as a philanthropy expert, Mede currently serves on the board of 100 Strong, a charity supporting young black boys to achieve academic excellence. Uh, and attainment through mentorship by black male leaders. Mede is a British-born African living in Canada, and he obtained a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Studies and Sociology from the University of Surrey, and a Master's of Science and Economics in the Political Economy of Asia and Africa from SOAS at the University of London. He's passionate about equity and social justice, and possesses an avid interest in current affairs and global politics. Well, thank you, Mede, for joining us today. I'm really happy to have you on the show. Um, You know, uh, I appreciate the time that you're giving to us uh, because, of course, I know that you could be elsewhere, but you've decided to join us today. So we're happy to have you uh, uh, here on the podcast. I'm actually delighted to be spending this time with you, Aziz. Uh, As you know, I'm a huge fan. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so let's let's get right into it. And, and as we always do with with all of our guests, uh, you know, we want to start from the beginning, right? Uh, and then work our way to to where you are right now, and then discuss all of the the things that that have, that you know you've gone through along the way. Um, so so talk to us about your upbringing. Where did you start? What were your early years like? Um, you know, and how did you ultimately find your way into uh, this exciting path of philanthropy that you're that you're working in? Sure. Um, I I was born and raised in London, England. Uh, My parents are from Nigeria, both uh, Yoruba. And uh, my father actually left Nigeria to go to the UK to uh, get a post-secondary education. So so he went to college and university there. Uh, the story goes that it was so cold that he went back home to find uh, a, a wife who <laughs> happened to be my mother, and the two of them uh, then emigrated back to the UK and started to have kids. So I, I am the second of three children that uh, my parents had uh, at the time, all of us born in the UK, uh, and I was the only one born in London. My siblings uh, were born in other parts of England. So that that was my beginning. It was a a wonderful start to life with two parents uh, who who loved us, who worked hard, who believed very much in education. Uh, 
um, it, there came a point where my father completed his studies that uh, uh, it was time to go back to Nigeria, as far as he was concerned. He, 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 my, my father really did not like the, the racism that he experienced in, in the UK. Mm. Uh, you know, he often told stories that uh, when he was looking for accommodation, there would be uh, two signs on a window. The first would be room to let, and then the second side would be no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. Wow. And, and that left an impression on him. So he, he always intended to return to Nigeria. So when I was three years old, uh, our family went to Nigeria. It was my first time of going to Nigeria. We, we lived in Lagos. And then um, after three years, when I was six, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but uh, my mother uh, uh, and I returned to London. And uh, a few years later, it transpired that actually, you know, my, my parents were separating. So one of my siblings was raised in Nigeria uh, with my father. And then I uh, was raised in, um, in London, England with my mother. So, so the, from the age of six, um, uh, I was brought up by a single parent, my mother, in uh, the low income part of, uh, of London. Uh, uh, we lived in Brixton, uh, South West London. And uh, we essentially were homeless at, at the very beginning because um, we didn't have substantive accommodation. So we would stay with friends, uh, we would stay with uh, relatives. And it wasn't until I was actually 10 years old that uh, my mother was able to secure social housing. So for four years, we essentially lived um, as, as homeless people, really couch surfing or, or, or seeking accommodation in people's attics or, or lofts, as they're called over here. So, so that was the beginning of my life journey. Uh, uh, I think I would it would be accurate to say that it started with um, fracture. Uh, and, and that left an indelible mark on me um, uh, as I started to grow older, uh, that dealing with that fracture was um, um, quite the challenge. Wow, that, that is quite intense. That is quite intense. And, and up until how old um, or, or at what age did you finally did you and your mom finally get into 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 housing um so between the age of six and essentially 10 we were homeless and then at the age of 10 we settled just on the cusp of brixton so we were actually in a kind of what is called a, a kind of dual neighborhood so we were halfway between camberwell and brixton uh just by the cold harbor uh cold harbor lane uh, Londoners and South Londoners would know very well uh, around Mikesfield Park, uh, the area I'm talking about. So right. that's where we settled. And I lived there for a further 10 years wow. uh, until I was 20. Uh, uh, and then from that point was able to move to Battersea, a kind of middle class uh, neighborhood, uh, which was closer to my university. Excellent. And, and so what, what was life like growing up within those 10 years? Uh, you know, high school, uh, university, and, and or even, I guess, finishing uh, uh, elementary school or primary school and then going into, into secondary school. What, what was that like? 
those those actually were tough years, tough years for me because you know you don't as a child you don't fully understand what is happening, but you know what is happening is not right. You know that you know something's up, but perhaps you don't have the wisdom or the life experience really to place it. But but for me, the way that it manifested was that um, I had almost zero interest in school and in education. Uh, I was much more interested in hanging out with my friends. Uh, I was a, a prolific truant. Uh, <laughs> I remember we, we had an 11-foot fence in my school, and it was really was not, not necessarily to keep people out, but to keep the kids in. Uh, but, but I could scale that fence in, in, in no time at all. Uh, even as somebody who was like under five feet, I could scale that 11-foot fence, flip over, and then uh, I would go to Battersea Park with my friends, rent a boat, and we would just um, row uh, <laughs> our boats on the lake uh, instead of being in the maths, physics, or, or chemistry class. And so I had a real disdain for school and education. I didn't actually understand what education was about. And so no surprise then, by the time I was 16, when it was time to leave high school, I practically left with no qualifications because uh, I, I spent probably more time outside of school yeah. than I had inside of school. And, and, and I Living your best say, life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I should also say that by this time, my mother had remarried, that I had uh, a few younger siblings um, uh, as well, who were who were pretty much uh, uh, very young at that time, right? Uh, and so, you know, uh, my mom, uh, I think, did a phenomenal job. But I was always the one who was outside of her central vision. I was kind of on the periphery, and uh, she, of course, thought I was a saint. The butter wouldn't melt in my mouth, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so she kind of trusted that I would get up to only good things. Uh, which, of course, nothing could have been further from the truth. Right. So, so you, 16, it's time to leave high school, but you're not prepared, all right? What happens at this point? So at this point, uh, I'm looking at some of my friends, and, you know, they're on the streets, and, uh, and they're making money. And, uh, I, and uh, I failed all of my courses, practically speaking. Uh, but but a teacher pulls me aside, and he says, "Listen, Akira, you know, I've been I've been watching you, uh, and I believe that um, his name was Mr. Lamoth. He was our English teacher, uh, a, a Caribbean man. I believe he was from uh, Trinidad, <clears throat> and he was the only teacher who admonished me for skipping school." But he said to me, listen, I've been observing you and I believe you have potential. So rather than leave school at 16, why don't you come back to what was then called the sixth form, which you could uh, study for a further two years, get your A-levels and go to university. Come back to the sixth form um, and I can help you. But my condition is that you stop messing around, you stop skipping school and you really focus. And Mr. Lamarth, changed my life. Um, mm. He helped me to understand the importance of education. And not just that, but that I had intelligence, which I had always doubted um, that I had intelligence. I, I didn't believe at all that I was teachable in, in any way 
um, academically speaking. And Mr. Lamarck kind of re-engineered my thinking for me. The long story is that, the short story, shall I say, is that um, when I left sixth form, uh, I left with uh, three and a half GCEs or GCSEs, Mm. a combination of the two. Uh, And that was enough to get me into college where I studied a, uh, a higher national diploma, which was then enough to get me into university. So that was my journey. Uh, it was one teacher who really admonished me and encouraged me at the same time to take my education seriously. And I'm eternally grateful to him for taking just 10 minutes of his time to show me uh, that he cared. And, and that was all the inspiration I needed. I never looked back after that as far as education is concerned. Um, today, I'm proud to say that I have a, a, a Master of Science degree in the Politics and Economics of Asia and Africa, uh, which I achieved from uh, the University of London, the School of Oriental and African Studies. Amazing. And, 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 and that has become the kind of catalyst uh, for any success uh, that, that I may even consider that I have the fact that I took time to get re-engaged into education. Right. That, that, that's really amazing. Really, really amazing. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important and it's critical when you have these, uh, what I tend to call destiny helpers, you know, mm. those individuals that just show up at the right time uh, to ensure that you're headed in the right direction. Uh, yeah. Even if you're not sure what, what that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about the university life, right? You, you've now found a path uh, forward. Um, so what influenced the choices of programs that you studied? Um, so you went to the University of, of Roehampton uh, to, to yeah. start with, um, mm-hmm. focused on business studies, sociology. What was the, yeah. what was the motivation to, to, to take that path? I think Mr. Lamoth did a great job in helping me to understand the importance of education and um, giving me guidance and giving me some confidence. But he, one of the things that I discovered was that um, I didn't have all the confidence I needed. So even when it came to the stage of um, applying for university, I I, I, for some reason or another, decided to apply to the most accessible, the most obscure university uh, because I didn't think that a a blue chip or prestige uh, university would accept my credentials. Um, You know, most people go to university with uh, three to six A-levels. I was going into university with a diploma. And, and at that time, that was really frowned upon by, uh, by, by many universities. They didn't consider that you had put in the sweat equity, the intellectual equity to warrant entry into a university. So, so I felt that I only really had the choice to apply to what was considered at the time the lower rung universities. And that's how I ended up in Roehampton, which is right on the periphery of London, border in the, the, the city of Surrey. Um, and and um, one thing I would say is that I actually, I, I grew up in a Black Caribbean community. Um, uh, my friends were mostly Jamaican, some were Nigerian. 
And so even throughout high school, uh, I was very at ease with my cultural identity. And that was reinforced by my friends and people in my community. And then when I went to Roehampton, it was an entirely white environment. Uh, and I, at the time, hated it. I, I, I detested being in that environment where there was hardly anybody who looked like me. Yeah. It was the whitest of white environments. And I just felt like a fish out of water. And the way that that manifested was that um, normally in university, I understand, you know, that's where some of your more um, uh, serious friendships, long-lasting friendships are formed. And I, I didn't make a single friend um, oh, wow. in, in, in university until perhaps my third year. So I was the guy who had the headphones on, <laughs> music blaring out, and the headphones would only come off about a minute before the lecturer stepped in to uh, teach the class. How did that feel? I mean, that must have been lonely or were you um, comfortable with the fact that, okay, I have friends outside of here and that's where I put my energy instead of, you know, focusing on these individuals that are around me that don't look like me? Yeah, very much so. I, I just, you know, I was perhaps at that time stage in my life quite belligerent. And so I, I made no effort myself because um, I just felt it was such a different environment to what I was used to. I didn't understand the people culturally speaking. Um, I don't think I understood them even in terms of the learning environment. Uh, I really didn't want to be there. I really just wanted to get my degree and leave. And that essentially is what I did. I got my degree and I left uh, the university. Important for me to say that actually, you know, I don't think that I don't place any blame on the university. It was just my frame of mind right. at the time. It was a lot of how I was feeling was to do with my upbringing and my background. The fact that I had only ever been surrounded by black people who looked like me. And here I was for the first time in my life, the odd one out culturally and racially speaking in a learning environment. Yeah, that, that must have been really challenging. And, and it's, it's quite interesting, especially considering that you're in the UK, right, mm -hmm. where it is a majority white society. So one Absolutely. would assume that at some point you would have, you know, interacted um, comfortably uh, with with uh, 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 white people or other races, uh, uh, which uh, which would have made it easier to to function in, in university. But that, that that that's a very interesting uh, uh, perspective and 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 life uh, mm -hmm. a life path. Yeah, I mean, much of this has to do with the fact that Brixton at the time. I mean, it's very different now, but Brixton at the time was essentially a black enclave. Hmm. Um, uh, and so this is where black people gathered to build community. This is where black people gathered to, to, to create music and art, uh, 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 to, to, to import and sell foods from our respective countries, whether it's from the Caribbean or even from the African continent. Uh, this was the place where, you know, the, the kind of hip hop style at that point in my life was coming out and retailers uh, were selling those, those, those fashions that others 
uh, looked at and thought was really weird and strange. So, so it was very easy for me as a young person to be absorbed into black culture because everywhere I looked, I had it around me. Uh, it just wasn't a great preparation for leaving my community right. and going into other parts of uh, of of, uh, of London or England or even the UK, I didn't realize how white the country was until I went to university. You know, would you say that you know you you finish at your undergrad, um, and then of course you you end up in in uh, in a master's program at the University of London, um, focusing on on politics of, in Asia and Africa. So there's uh, you know there's a certain component of heritage and culture that is involved in in that particular type of of, of program. Let's talk about getting into University of London for a master's, or even deciding to do a master's, and then we'll touch on how your you know, cultural upbringing also helped shape how you chose to effectively get your master's done, focus on your dissertation, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and mm-hmm. go from there. The, the, the go, Doing my master's degree was not an intentional decision on my part. It was the byproduct of the fact that when I was in my final year, my third year of my degree, um, my peers were all boasting about getting already receiving job offers uh, and this massively confused me <laughs> because um, I, I, I really didn't understand what was happening it was like a phenomenon uh, you know almost everybody that was in my class my business studies class of which there were about 150 of us were kind of bragging and boasting about which bank or which insurance company they had gotten a job uh, at, and and I had absolutely no job offers. Even by the time I had uh, uh, applied to three hundred uh, potential employers. Wow! So I had these, uh, uh, and one in two of the three hundred would actually reply with a rejection letter. So at the end of a year uh, after graduating, I had a, a pile of 150 rejection letters uh, with my name on um, for jobs. And uh, that was a bit of a crisis point for me. Uh, um, uh, I, 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 didn't, I, I was really desperate to find employment, but it, it seemed that employers were not really looking for graduates uh, who were black and African, who had the name uh, Olibide Akerewusi. <laughs> uh, uh, and so that, that was a real awakening for me to say that, you know, because my, my mother had always kind of said to me, look, if you take your education seriously, you'll get a good job and you'll prosper in life. And here I was finally taking my education seriously. I had worked very hard for a number of years and uh, I was on the scrap heap even before I, I had started it. That's how it felt. Mm. So my only other choice then was um, to do kind of, to, to go back to university. And it was my mother who gave me the loan uh, to enter into the master's course. And um, the reason I chose um, uh, politics and economics uh, was essentially that when I 
found that I couldn't get into the finance sector. My second choice was to become a uh, to work in the British diplomatic service. So I actually thought that if I went to a prestigious university, studied an international focused um, discipline, um, and got a master's degree, that that would make me a prime candidate for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 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 Britain. Uh, but actually, it was the reverse. Uh, uh, I found that, again, you know, even the government wasn't looking to recruit um, Black African graduates, whether they had postgraduate degrees or not, into the diplomatic service. And I remember a, um, a friend of mine who was a lawyer at the time was talking to me about his daughter. He was from, uh, he, he originated from India, and he was talking to me about his daughter because she wanted to also get into the foreign and diplomatic service. And somebody in the foreign and diplomatic service had said to her, my friend's daughter, that there was no way she would ever enter the foreign and diplomatic service uh, because she didn't have a degree from Oxford or Cambridge. Ooh, wow. And so that really was, uh, I found that <laughs> kind of overwhelming, disappointing. Uh, now I didn't, you know, uh, not only did I have an experience of having one degree and finding no employer, but now I had two degrees and still couldn't find an employer. And um, I had to rethink my life hmm. from that point, uh, where I would go, what I would do. Uh, by this time, I was 25 years old um, and unemployed. What was the next step? After that, because this this is almost like a you know you're, you've reached an existential crisis here. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've done what everyone said that I needed to do to yeah. get ahead. I've followed the path. I've corrected my ways, if you will. Um, and yet, the reward that everyone promised, I don't have. How did that feel? And then you know, and what what did you do next? There's a pull that comes, particularly if you grow up. Uh, in the community that I grew up in, there's a pull to be affiliated with what is happening in the streets, the informal nature of uh, economy on the streets. There's a pull. Um, but by the time I was 25, um, I had already made up my mind that I wanted to be a professional. I, I, wanted, I, I wanted to earn my place in an office environment and, and demonstrate to people how skilled I was, how smart I, I was. And so what I decided to do, instead of kind of yielding to this kind of force that is threatening to pull you into a direction where, you know, there, there are absolutely no positives, uh, was that I decided to become a volunteer. Uh, so rather than spend my time at home or on the streets, I, I decided that I would just volunteer my time with nonprofit organizations and still do the job search and try and figure out my life from there. Um, and I, within a year, I had volunteered for five nonprofit organizations, really just doing clerical work um, that you know they had asked me to do. And at the end of that year, uh, it, it had transpired that each of the organizations had placed me in their fundraising department. Hmm. 
so inadvertently, I had accumulated a year's worth of fundraising experience. I'd learned how to write letters to donors. I'd learned how to phone and have a conversation, a confident conversation with the donor. I'd learned how to speak with donors and tell them, for instance, that um, you know uh, their investment was being used really well by the organization and that we were uh, uh, really grateful for, for their work. I'd learned how to, for their support, I mean. So I'd learned how to do some of the fundamentals of fundraising around donor acknowledgement and making the arts. And unbeknownst to me, uh, that was a, a great foundation to start to look at a professional career. Incredible. Incredible. And, and that, what did that professional career start to look like? You know, when things, you know, when did you feel like things started to turn around or that you had a clarity of, okay, I think this is the space that I really want to spend much of at least the next few years of my professional life in? So I was a volunteer, but it's also important to state that uh, I also worked in several fast food restaurants okay. uh, 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 and was doing kind of, uh, you know, more or less uh, morning and night shifts there. So I worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, I worked for McDonald's, Burger King. Uh, I worked for Taco Bell. And uh, I think I did a stint in Wendy's nice. as well. So so flipping burgers and dunking chicken in uh, in in oil vets was uh, something that I did to earn a living, uh, whilst also volunteering uh, um, uh, with nonprofit organisations. But the catalyst came when I applied for a management training position in a nonprofit organisation and got that job. Mm. Uh, uh, I had to go on a two-day retreat, uh, um, uh, very far from home. Uh, to, you know, as part of the interview process and the interviewers clearly saw something in me and uh, selected me for my very first professional job. And they had a distinct project for me as well. It was to raise um, just over three million pounds from a foundation and I would be the project manager uh, for the writing of the proposal to this foundation. So it was a, a national project. So in England, in Scotland, and in Northern Ireland. And my job was to bring together the nonprofit partners so we could write a detailed proposal, which I did. Uh, the grant was submitted. And uh, uh, I believe we raised about 3.26 million. The number is etched into my mind <laughs> uh, in my first grant proposal. So that was the beginning of a phenomenal roller coaster of career development in the nonprofit world for me because I had arrived very early mm. at success as a as a major gift fundraiser. It, it was essentially my, my first kick of the can, but it was a phenomenal kick. Um, and, and so with that reputation, I was able to work for a number of other organizations, experience a, a very high degree of success in relationship fundraising, in major gift fundraising. And um, within two years, I was managing teams, nice. fundraising teams. Nice. How, how, I mean, okay, let's talk about, you know, three, four years into this, right? 
how did you feel at that point? Like how, how, when you started to look at, you know, the, the skills you were getting, the successes from, uh, you know, actually hitting fundraising targets, uh, what was that starting to look like for you in your mind? Uh, you know, do, were you using these, you know, couple of degrees that you, that you had painstakingly gotten and did it feel like it was finally paying off? Yeah, it, it was, ex, it was exhilarating. Uh, also, you know, not only was I experiencing professional success, um, finally, but uh, I had also gotten married. And um, I think by the time, yes, so by the time I was 28, I had, I was married and I had two children uh, in in that time as well. And I was managing uh, fundraising teams in organizations such as uh, Scope, the, the UK's largest disability charity the Children's Society, one of the oldest uh, children's organizations in the world, and the British Red Cross, uh, one of the largest um, domestic and international relief agencies. Uh, and I was leading their major gift department. So, mm. so I was the guy who was responsible for raising gifts upwards of 10,000 to hundreds of thousands and multi-million dollars. So, so my mid to late 20s, were quite the roller coaster in terms of things that were happening in my life. You know, it, it seemed as though my life was just coming together in the way that I had absolutely dreamt it to be. That's phenomenal. That's fantastic. I was literally living the dream. The dream. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, th- when you think about it, you know, coming from, uh, you know, just even the story we've talked about so far, right? Uh, you mentioned that, you know, your life started with fracture, really started with fracture, mm-hmm. um, you know, from uh, childhood, a fracture in, within education, um, a fracture of unemployment after doing what you were supposed to do. And then now things are starting to, to come together. This, this, of course, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. When did you, um, you know, let's pivot a bit to, to coming to Toronto because you've done all of this great work in the U.K., uh, you know, raised millions of pounds for different organizations, um, of course, built probably some good relationships, uh, with, not just with, with the companies uh, or with the nonprofits, but with the donors as well. You decide to, you know, cross the pond the other way uh, uh, to come to North America in, in Toronto. What, what was the attraction and, and what made you carry, you know, take your entire family and decide that you know, we're, we're going to create another life in, in Canada? There were two things. Uh, the, the first was circumstantial. The second was quite personal. The first was that I found that I was at a, a stage in my career that I was going from one middle management job to another middle management job. Uh, and I had already worked by the time I was about 35 or 36 I'd already successfully worked three middle management jobs in three nonprofit organizations. But it seemed that there was no way that I would ever become an executive. And, and actually, you know, people kind of intimated that to me, like, you know, this is where your career stops. Hmm. And, and so I found that to be um, quite challenging. Um, I could see that, Actually, I had tremendous ambition and, and, and to really just be stuck in middle management. I felt I had so much more to offer. 
And so that was the point where I started to think, well, if I can't become an executive in the UK, working for a nonprofit organization, then really my only other alternative is to leave the UK and try and find an executive job overseas. So uh, my family and I decided that we would, I I, I had uh, this vision of um, uh, moving to New York City and raising millions of dollars for uh, 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 community-based organizations there. In the process of applying for work in New York City, a search firm in Toronto reached out to me and said, listen, you know, we're not New York City, but we've got an executive job here uh, in Toronto, and uh, we think you should apply. And so that was the beginning of us thinking about moving to Canada. Canada was never even a consideration for us at that time. I was, I was really, um, my wife and I were really intent on moving to New York City. How did you find it when you finally landed? Uh, when I finally landed in, in Toronto? Yeah. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> Cold disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh i mean my experience of cold in london was you know it's five degrees better get your hat buy your gloves you know it's extremely cold and then coming to canada to toronto where it reached minus 20 what a shock to the system (laughs) i remember walking home from work one october it was the it was october 2008 it was an extremely cold winter probably around minus 20 or so. Um, and there was a 10-minute walk after I had finished work from uh, the subway station to my house. So I came out of the subway station. It, there was a snow blizzard, and I had to walk 10 minutes to reach my home. I thought I would never make it. <laughs> I was crying on the way home. I was actually literally in tears. I had never felt so cold and it was dark outside as well there was nobody on the street and i think because it was a snow blizzard there was about uh two feet of snow i'd never experienced anything like that and i thought that actually i would just collapse and somebody would see me in the in, in the morning if i wasn't buried in snow by that time i remember making it home and i just sat on the radiator bawling like a baby uh, because uh, uh, the cold was just way too extreme for me. So on the, on the one hand, I, I found the cold to be quite punishing. But on the other hand, I greatly admired um, Canadian society and an aspect of culture because I had been raised in a country that had told me that unless I was of a certain class, I was never going to be successful. Mm. Unless I was upper class or middle class, I would never achieve success. And and we're taught that in the UK. And I believed it. Uh, I fought against it, which is why we left. But I, I, I certainly believed that in the UK, unless I was a certain class, I was not going to be professionally fulfilled. And I found it amazing that in Canada, the class structure certainly is nowhere near as pronounced as it is in the UK. But what it means is that society is a lot more open Mm. 
and a lot more fluid. And um, certainly it's uh, more, in my opinion, and in some areas, not in every area, but in some areas, it's, it's more egalitarian than the UK. Right. And that I found to be extremely satisfying. That's good. That's good. So how, how, how was that first role? You know, you've, you've come into Canada, you've come into Toronto uh, for that executive role, right? Uh, and it was at, at the YMCA um, as a chief development officer. Um, mm-hmm. How uh, was that experience working with, with the Y? That experience was a real revelation because I naturally, I was 37 years old uh, when I became chief development officer at the YMCA of Greater Toronto. So I still, I was still relatively young. Uh, and I thought that that was my natural place to be. I just wanted to be an executive. Uh, and then when I started to fulfill the responsibilities of an executive, being responsible to report to our boards, to um, be accountable to my, my executive peers, to be steeped more in administration rather than the face-to-face fundraising, which middle, middle management had afforded me. Uh, I began to realize, actually, that um, this role that I had sought for so long wasn't really me. Uh, uh, I had wanted to be an executive, but when I was an executive, I did not like being an executive. Um, I didn't like the, 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 the administrative focus of um, the executive role at all. I didn't like the distance that it created between me and donors. Um, I really craved to have, once again, those kind of really transparent and intimate relationships with donors that enabled us to build trust, uh, that, that positioned me more as an advisor uh, to, to philanthropists than, you know, somebody who was reporting on how we were performing in one area of fundraising versus another and, you know, writing budgets and, and that type of thing. So, so, so I discovered about myself, actually, in that role, that it really wasn't me at all. And, 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 and I actually made a pledge to myself at that time, um, never really to pursue an executive role again. Wow. That deep, that deep of a revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite, you know, I, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. There's yeah. no way we can be honest with other people if we are not, first of all, honest with ourselves. And so I had to be honest with myself that although I had pursued this and thought that I deserved it as, as a role, um, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It didn't bring me joy. Yeah. Uh, I was not fulfilled, uh, in, in that I was being paid very well, compensated extremely well. Um, but there was just, for me, no life in the role at all. So that concludes part one of a great conversation with Made Akira Wusi. Join us for part two on the next episode as we conclude Made's exciting story. He'll share more about his journey on, in the nonprofit fundraising industry and how he eventually decided to strike out on his own and start his own company. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. And also leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Aziz Garuba, and you've been listening to Made to Lead.